From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing current events impacting the business and political community. I'm Michael Steele, a partner at HPS, and I'm joined today by Brian D'Angelis, who's a managing director at our firm, and also by Jim Tankersley, who covers tax and the economy for the New York Times, and is the author of a new book, The Riches of This Land. Here's the story of, uh, after World War II, unsung Americans built the strongest middle class in human history, and then powerful men tore it apart. Here's the story of what went wrong and how to get it back. So I'm going to start with the, the question I know every author loves. Uh, Jim, excited to have you here today. What is your book about? That's a great question, Mike. Thanks so much. Now, um, uh, the book is a, is a, is a history, it's, it's a, and it's a, uh, a guidepost for Washington. It's the story of how uh, America actually built the strongest middle class in human history and uh, how we can rebuild it again. Um, uh, by investing in the sort of people who built it in the first place. Um, uh, essentially, the argument is, based on detailed e- economic research and uh, my own reporting over more than 10 years as an economics reporter, um, the argument is that the American economy boomed in the 50s and 60s and 70s and lifted millions of people into the middle class because we tore down the barriers that kept um, non-white guys, basically women and men of color, out of the economy and out of doing what they're best at. And that when we, through the hard work of civil rights and the necessity of the war effort and its aftermath, uh, when we started opening more opportunities, um, that created this productivity boom that pulled uh, a a lot of really talented people into really important places in the economy, made everything grow faster and and created the conditions for millions of people, not just those workers, but also white men uh, to move into the middle class. and both the bad news of the last few decades is that that progress stopped and in some ways reversed. And the good news is we have the raw, all the raw materials we need right now for, for another, for repeat, for another version of, uh, of that great middle-class success story. And it's really just about investing in people and, and uh, tearing down the uh, barriers that keep them from getting ahead. Well, talk to us a little bit about, about your background, both personally and professionally, and, and what drew you to this topic. So I grew up in a small town in Oregon, a timber town. Uh, it used to be. It's 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 a wine town now, uh, which is sort of like the American the evolution of the American economy in a nutshell. We've gone from uh, from logging to Pinot Noir, but um, but in my in my town in in Oregon in the '80s and, and early '90s when I was a, a kid and in high school, um, I watched sort of an economic ladder snap out from under a bunch of the blue collar families who I went to school with. You know, whose dads and moms worked in the industry, the logging industry, or in, in supporting industries. And these were especially the young men I went to school with, and they were almost all white. Um, they had a reasonable expectation at entering school that they would just be able to graduate from high school and go to work in the woods or something having to do with the woods and have a good paying job that could allow them to own a house and a car and, and have a nice life for themselves and their children because that's what their parents had had. But instead, um, I watched those jobs dry up. The timber industry basically collapsed in Oregon in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, it, and it really left a huge effect on me. I, I just sort of wondered, well, these are talented people. These are, these are hard workers. We, we were on different paths. I knew from the get-go that I was going to go to a four-year college and that I, I wanted to have that sort of a, a career. But I, I could see how talented and, and hardworking they were. And the economy just didn't seem to be working for them. And I wondered, you know, when's, when is it going to start? When are we going to have an economy that works for these guys I went to high school with? Um, 
but the uh, you know the flip side of it uh, is that it, it turns out it's not just those workers who were left behind. It's not just the guys I went to high school with that the American economy over the last several decades has left behind just huge swaths of people. And so as I moved into first politics reporting uh, and then uh, full-time economics reporting, which I've done for the last 10 years in Washington, I've just been obsessed with this question. When will the economy start working again for working people in the way that we expect it to? Because we're Americans and we remember how it used to work and we're optimistic that it can again. And so that has sort of been this uh, kind of career long arc for me. And, um, and then that intersected with the election of Donald Trump, which in so many ways was about the anxieties of an America uh, where the economy doesn't work for everybody anymore. Uh, and, and so I put it all together into a book that I hope will um, help inform the way people think about these questions moving forward. Yeah, because I feel like this is a story across the country. I mean, I'm from Durham, North Carolina, where you could graduate from Durham High and go to work at Liggett and Myers or American Tobacco. My mother's from Gloucester, Massachusetts, where you graduate from Gloucester High and go work on the fishing boats. And none of those opportunities uh, for jobs without a, without a four-year degree are there anymore. And Brian, I know you're from, from Worcester. I imagine it's a fairly similar story. Uh, actually, uh, you know, Lowell, Massachusetts is, is where I grew up. And thinking about Wang having its headquarters there, for those of you who are old enough to remember Wang, and uh, my parents both worked at Digital Equipment Corporation for 20 years, you know, neither one of which exists anymore and sort of disappeared in the 80s. So, so I was curious, Jim, you know, your book, kind of looks at the 80s as the start of this turn, but then both between COVID and the 08 financial crisis, it seems like there were some significant body blows to the middle class, if you will. Talk to us a little bit about how those two events impacted things. Absolutely. Well, so I, I mean, and I want to just say that like what you experienced in your town and what I experienced and what, you know, Michael experienced in his town, like that's, that's the experience of the American economy and in, in the manufacturing sectors and the sectors with sort of manual labor, there's been this, this um, long running decline it, and it's, and some of it's automation and some of it's outsourcing and some of it is just changes in the economy. Um, but they were just totally exacerbated. I mean, the financial crisis, actually the recession before that, the 2001 recession that President right. Bush inherited, basically. I mean, it was the economy was slipping into recession when, when President Bush took office. And, um, you know, that, that recession and the ensuing China shock, we, we lost millions of good paying middle class jobs in that recession. The financial crisis was even worse. It wiped out family wealth for just, you know, large swaths of the American working class. And then, um, you know, some of them had started to recover that wealth, not all of them, uh, right at the time that the COVID recession comes along. And the COVID recession hits uh, kind of the most vulnerable people hardest, the people who, who work lower paying service jobs where you can't work from home, um, who tend to be lower educated, lower income, and disproportionately black and, and uh, Latino and disproportionately women. And they also get those same workers are disproportionately slammed by the childcare crisis that's come out of this recession of like schools not being open and daycare centers being in reduced capacity. And so, you know, the economy had sort of evolved and kind of started to strengthen again after this long and slow recovery from the 08 recession. And the middle class was just starting to see not even great income gains again, like still nothing close to the late 90s or the 50s and 60s, but something good, something solid the last couple of years, and then whoosh, it's all cut out from under those workers again. And um, I think there was some hope early on in the pandemic that this would be quick. We turn the lights off on the economy 
We make it safe to go to work again. We turn them back on. And it's just not, it's just not going to happen. It's just like we're, we're losing um, businesses left and right, losing jobs left and right. And we're seeing companies adapt in, way, in some ways that are labor saving, that are, that are, you know, they're moving on from the employees they had. So the economy is going to go through another difficult adjustment period. And what we've seen from difficult adjustment periods this century really is that they are hardest on, you know, working class Americans, whether they're white workers who voted for Trump or black workers who voted for you know, Clinton or for Joe Biden in the primaries this time around, um, uh, you know, or, or for immigrants that, that are, are in those jobs. And so I think that that is a recipe here for a, another really difficult recovery. Well, I want to, I want to, we've been dwelling on the doom and gloom here a little bit. I want to yeah. talk about the, the optimistic message of the book, which is that so many people seem to think that faced with these economic difficulties, politically, people kind of get more tribal, try to do more to protect the privileges and, and advantages that white men have traditionally had in this country. You argue that the opposite is actually the key to, uh, to a renewed, stronger middle class. And, and, the misunderstood or little understood story of, of building the middle class in the post-World War II era. Yeah, I actually really think that this is a, um, a difficult message to sell. I've, I've had a couple of people I've talked to about the book interviewers be like, wait, how can you possibly think anyone's going to believe you on this? Because it's, <laughs> it's so easy. It's so easy to tell any group of workers that some people who don't look like you are coming to take your job, whether that is, you know, immigrants or women or billionaires, like this idea that there is some other group that's taking away what you rightfully earned. Um, but the argument of the book, and I just think really, really supported by American history and by the research that, that I cite here and by the experiences of the workers who I, I have I've gotten to know over my career, is that actually the economy does best when, when um, pe- everyone gets ahead. That It's not a zero sum game. We can have a growing pie where everyone gets a bigger slice. And people are skeptical of that idea because they were promised, you know, economic growth would, would filter down to everyone so much yeah. over the years and, that, and so often didn't happen. But I think there's reasons why it didn't happen. And the optimistic message of the book is we can, by focusing on um, helping each other reach our full potential, I guess is the word I would use, full human capabilities, we can make an economy that is just better, just way better than it is now. And um, and it's sort of like the, the, if there's anybody who's heard it all, and I actually think that everybody comes off better in the end. If there's anybody who's heard it all, it's guys like us. Because right. white college educated men in this country have for the most part, I mean, it's particularly in the last 40 years, reaped the disproportionate share of the benefits of globalization and automation. We were sort of in charge when it started and we've stayed in charge. But, um, but I, I actually think it's not a tenable system for the elites in power right now either. We're seeing that happening all over the country. So it's actually, if, if our income growth slows slightly because the rapid advancement of opportunity creates more competition for guys like us at the top, that's good for us o- over time. We're still, we're still better off than we were. And sure. we are, we're living in a much more prosperous, just, and, and stable country and so, you know, you can not care at all about the social justice part of this, which I, I very much do. I, I care a lot about it. But you could just look at it from an economic efficiency standpoint and say, this is in everyone's best interest. America works best when everyone's getting ahead. Uh, and it sounds very Pollyanna, but it actually is true. 
well, talk a little bit about some of the, the specific policies that you, you think would help encourage that sort of inclusive growth um, that would lead to more balanced outcomes. So I think there's a lot. And I think, I think a really um, uh, important component of this is that you can come, I don't in the book have like a 10 point plan. Um, most books at the end of the last chapter, you're supposed to have like the policy recommendations. My editors want the policy recommendations. So I have some, um, but I don't, uh, uh, I don't have like a set, like if we just did this, this, you know, these five things, everything would get better. But I do think that, that no matter where you come from ideologically, you can find a route that appeals to you. So, uh, because I think that what we need to do is, uh, free people up to make the best of, of their talents and to not be blocked by discrimination. Um, so that means, I mean, it starts with, we need massive improvements in the quality and access to education, you know, that we see uh, at the beginning. And, um, and I think that that is, you know, we still have an inequality of educational outcomes in this country and of educational quality. And, and if we truly lived in a world where the lowest income kids were getting just as good of an education as the highest income kids, that would be dramatically better for our economy. So that's not an easy fix. But I do think that starting there is, is a big improvement. And then you sort of work your way up the ladder. We need more aggressive anti-discrimination efforts by companies inside companies to sort of um, rid themselves of the path dependence that right now so often still um, pushes out quality, excludes quality candidates, and also the overt discrimination that, that knocks them back. Um, we need to do way more to support women who are our, um, statistically our most skilled workforce right now. I mean, they just go to school much more than men do right now. And um, we make it hard for them to, to balance the, the demands that society still puts on them as mothers when they choose to have children uh, with the demands of moving up in a corporate world. And they so often end up sort of shuffled out of the highest skilled uh, jobs because we don't have adequate childcare. That's a specific policy that I advocate in the book is, is that a, a, a both supply and demand side approach to improving childcare quality and access and cost would be dramatically better. Um, and then, and then just one last quick thing on the other, I mean, I think there's a lot of regulations that hold people back that we are realizing, particularly in this crisis are dumb. And, um, and so if we allowed, you know, more, uh, moving, moving between States and taking your licensure with you, um, or, or just eliminating a lot of occupational licensing requirements anyway, uh, I think we would be able to see a much easier flow of talented people into higher value jobs. Um, so those are, that's just sort of a start. Yeah, I imagine that's true as well with, with non-competes. I don't know your, your thoughts there, but. Oh, yeah, totally. No, no, no. That's, yeah. I mean, that, that is a labor regulation that I think holds back smart, talented people from doing their, their best thing. And I know, I actually know, you know, there's, I'm sure you know them too, some, some, smart folks in Washington thinking really hard yeah. right now about how to get rid of non-competes entirely. Think so, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess, um, go ahead. I'm curious your thoughts too. Uh, you know, there, we are just in a very hyper partisan time and, and solutions from the government, regardless, I think of your ideology, don't seem to be forthcoming. And you're seeing that, especially in recent years, business community, at least publicly sort of sort of step up on that. And you just mentioned a little bit of that a minute ago, but I'd love to hear more of where both big corporations, your, you know, your JP Morgans, your, you know, McKinsey's of the world, but also small businesses and others, how can they help kind of close some of these gaps that we're talking about? I think we all have to kind of start at even, even smaller than that at an individual level and just sort of 
ask ourselves very bluntly, um, you know, what do I do that might have the effect of, of keeping people who don't look like me or who didn't come up in the same way that I did from getting to where I am? Um, so I, I, think, I think that means individually we need to challenge ourselves to be uh, constantly vigilant about making sure that there's equal opportunities for, for women and, and, and for, uh, you know, women of all races and men of color. Um, I think that companies, again, I, there certainly is actual, like, individual bad discrimination that is, you know, like what you would classically think of discrimination in companies. But so often, I think I've seen this in journalism so much, um, discrimination can just be, what is the pipeline that we have? We've had this pipeline forever. Let's just, right. let's just keep using it. It's always worked. But the pipeline can be exclusionary. It can, you can be missing a lot of people who don't look like the type of candidate you normally get. And, you know, I remember once, um, being hired by someone who told me that I reminded him a lot of him at, at, you know, when he was my age and telling that to a female, you know, cohort, like a, a woman who worked, uh, had worked with me in a, a previous employer. And she was like, that must be nice. There's no way that I could ever right. remind that guy of himself. And, and, you know, like point taken. So these are, those are like, um, fairly basic things to just sort of challenge path dependence. But I think companies can can go beyond that. I think um, it's not just about hiring. It's about investing. So much of what I'm saying in the book is about investing in ourselves and each other. And companies can really do more to sort of start treating workers like renewable resources again. Every person we get in the door, we're going to treat like they are a potential executive down the line. We're going to invest in their skills and in, and in supporting them. And I think the best companies do that now. Um, it would, we would have a better economy if everyone did that. And I understand the pressures that have led, you know, the companies to, uh, to treat some workers more disposably in, in recent decades. But, you know, trying to find ways to actively cultivate um, uh, advancement for all of your workers is something that is easy to just sort of say, hey, we want to do that. Harder to do, but just dramatically important. And we've seen you know, what the benefits of that look like. Companies, a lot of companies made really big efforts in the 60s as part of the civil rights movement to diversify, you know, their, who they hired. And it did, it did actually pay a lot of benefits immediately. It's just, we're not all the way there yet. We haven't finished the war. You've written a yeah. lot about, I'm sorry, go ahead, Brian. I was just going to make one kind of final point question on, um, especially the childcare point you raised. If anything, I, there's almost a silver lining with COVID of how much awareness you now have about your coworkers' life situation, that they are juggling, you know, in my personal situation, three kids who now have to have a full elementary school education by, you know, Google Meets, um, right. or that others, you know, uh, the childcare that was once there is not there anymore, whether that be a daycare or a nanny or, you know, grandma. Um, it's gone now and people are competing with this. And there's been a awareness that now the whole office sort of shares that experience with everybody that I think and I hope will be helpful as we advance further into this. I agree with that. And actually, I, wanna, I would go one step further, just riffing off your grandma point. There is a, a small but meaningful potential that this crisis will scramble where work happens in America, that, yeah, that yeah, remote yeah. work will become, you know, if, if we can find ways, again, this is not true for everybody, and this is part of the problem of the inequality of the recovery. But if we can find ways to make it easier for more people 
to live and work, maybe where they grew up, maybe around that kind of child care. You, you, you get the benefits of, the, of that child care for workers. You, you almost certainly are going to get lower housing costs, which allow, makes a middle class life more attainable for people. It's much easier to be you know, middle class uh, on, a, you know, on the same salary in Des Moines or San Francisco. It's much easier to be middle class in Des Moines. If, if you're making right. the same money and, 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 you know, this is not a Des Moines problem, but, but, you know, smaller um, towns that have started to really shrink or, or uh, you know, die economically. And I've, I've reported probably more about those types of towns than any other type of town in the last 10 years. Um, this would be a chance to revitalize them. And I think you actually then pick That's up a right. bunch of other value too, because there are some people who are already, who are not going to leave those towns. They just, for good reasons, don't want to leave grandma. They don't want to leave mom. And so they, they, they end up not pursuing their full potential of their talents because the, the full potential doesn't exist. There's no engineering firm in my town or whatever. And so I'm just going to um, stay here and be the very best thing that I can be. But there's not, well, what if there suddenly is the possibility for that? So I, I'm not, I don't want to sound too much like I'm, oh yeah, this crisis is going to be amazing for everything. But I think there are some small silver linings uh, of an otherwise horrific situation. And that could be one of them if we can sort of scramble the geography of work, um, you know, in a way that uh, helps people take advantage of what you were just saying. Yeah, I, I remember a, a good friend of mine in college who was from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. His mother was ill. He desperately wanted to find a job in New Orleans after graduation but he worked in computer software and there were, you know, he could easily find 50 jobs in Atlanta and none in new Orleans. And if, if you gave people the opportunity to do that, I mean, I certainly look at real estate prices in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm very envious of my, uh, my friends and high school classmates yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that stayed home, you know, leaving aside the fact that there are grandparents who could help with childcare. Um, I want to talk a little bit too about what you've written about the, the fact that the 16 election you're an economics writer, not a political writer, but this is the world we live in. The 16 election was to a certain extent a backlash, a revolt of the people who had faced these declining economic opportunities, but that then we, we missed the moment to do something, even before the COVID pandemic, we missed the moment to do something that would really help them. It's a tricky story because, you know, uh, um, there are entire slack rooms at major media organizations devoted to still litigating the economic anxiety versus racial anxiety question of 2016. Uh, my argument in the book is that basically they're, they're indistinguishable. Um, they are that the people who voted for Donald Trump, who defected in, in, in mass from Obama, the Obama coalition to the Trump coalition, were feeling the dual strains of racial and economic anxiety. Now, it's, it's also true that there was an enormous amount of of, of the country that was also feeling uh, economic anxiety, uh, but did not um, did not vote for Donald Trump. And that was in particularly true in the black community. Um, but, uh, and we didn't write nearly enough about them. Uh, we, we wrote about white economic anxiety as if it was his own thing and, and right. detached from the whole country. And I think we gave them a false picture, which I think complicated the, sort of the search for a real solution. If, if somehow in an alternate universe, a candidate in 2016, Republican or Democrat, had appealed to uh, economically anxious, culturally anxious, racially anxious, uh, you know, Midwestern voters, white voters who felt left behind by the changes in America and said, trust me on this, we're gonna build a bridge to an even better America together. And it's not gonna look like the one did before. Uh, we can't bring those jobs back, but I promise you it's gonna be better. 
Um, I don't know if they would have won and probably they wouldn't have, like that's politics. It's much easier to be like, I'm going to bring back that thing you're nostalgic for. But I think that that would have been the winning match. I mean, that, that economically would have worked much better to just sort of say, Hey, listen, that plant at Lordstown is not probably going to be a GM plant in 10 years. It might make electric trucks. It might make something else. It might be something totally different. We don't know, but here's what we do know. We know how investing in you and investing in your neighbors and bringing in more uh, workers and things like that can be helpful. And that's, that's honest in some ways, I don't think the policies match it, but in some ways that was the argument that Bill Clinton made so successfully right. in, in 1992 and in 1996. And that was, we didn't have a candidate in 2016 with the background and political skills to, to make that sort of argument. Yeah. Bill Clinton, you know, it's funny because the, the, the bill, the Bill Clinton economy in so many ways, Bill Clinton's economic policies have fallen out of vogue now. You know, what did he do? He balanced the budget. He opened up free trade. He deregulated the financial system. I mean, there's been some real backlashes. In, I mean, he was an architect, both of the most um, sustained period of income growth for the middle class since the 70s and also of the China shock. I mean, so it's right. like the, 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 his record is, but his messaging and the idea that he, I mean, he did appeal to left behind workers and he did tell them they were going to get good jobs back, but it was, it was very forward looking in a way that I think, you know, has been difficult for other candidates to capture. And even Obama's message, I, I think, you know, he tried to do that. He tried to talk about a clean energy economy and, and new mm -hmm. infrastructure, but really he found himself just trying to dig out from a crisis that, you know, I have some critiques about how they handled that with policy and the ways that it could have gone, you know, a bit of much faster recovery. But um, Trump, really is different in the way in which he played to the nostalgia economy. He did not pretend like there were trade-offs. It's just, those jobs are gone. We're going to get them back. Right. Yeah. Not stop. just nostalgia, but there's some other boogeyman for it, right? Even now with COVID right. it's, it's a less of a focus on let's get the relief you need now. So this is as painless as we can possibly make it until we recover. And instead it's, it didn't happen or it's defeated or the China virus, we're going to get it and it's going to be great again. And, you know, it really strikes me that we're missing an opportunity where we're probably causing more damage, not to get too political, by not just pumping the economy and especially people, stimulus payments and others uh, into the hands of the middle class to help them bridge this till we get to a fully reopened economy again. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think that we are, um, setting ourselves up for a lot of long-term pain with the policy, some of the policies we're doing now, you know, the administration, and, you know, I'm very blunt in the book that I think that economic research is very, very conclusive about the positive benefits of high-skilled immigrants, for example, and, and the way that they boost entrepreneurship and innovation in the United States and create jobs and, you know, there is a crackdown on, it, on all immigrants happening right now. Uh, and we will, uh, uh, I think, be hurt by that if, that if that persists and we really do see, you know, much lower numbers of immigrants, um, you know, particularly in high-skilled fields uh, in, the, in the coming years and decades because of policies pursued now uh, in the name of protecting workers. I think that's going to hurt workers a lot down the line. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly. Mm -hmm. 
You're listening to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies. Be sure to subscribe to hear the latest from the HPS team on policy debates affecting the business and political communities. Welcome back to HPS Insights. Um, Some of the best parts of this book are the stories of the people that you met along the way, the people that you met while you were reporting. Talk, Talk to us about some of those folks. I, it's my favorite part of my job, um, is just talking to really wonderful, hardworking, smart, interesting people who otherwise would never come into contact with a, with a camera crew or a newspaper reporter or whatever. And, and I, I, um, I feel like, you know, the, the, the centerpiece, the heart of this book is a, a family, um, headed by maybe the most extraordinary person I've ever talked to for a story. Um, a guy named Ed Green, who I met in Winston-Salem, North Carolina on a baseball, minor league ballpark concourse on the last day of the single A season in 2013 with my seven-year-old, then seven-year-old, now in high school son, uh, you know, next to me. And Ed is, is a tall uh, man who, uh, who sort of uh, walked toward us on the, on the concourse and and was very soft-spoken, but within five minutes had was telling my son how hard it is to scrub Pepsi out of concrete. And my son was then warning me, we can't, we can't spill Pepsi on the concrete, Dad. Um, but Ed, Ed is this remarkable illustration, first off, in his own life of the changes and challenges of the American middle class the last few decades. He used to have a middle-class job. Um, he moved to North, in New York City, but he moved to North Carolina to be with his dying mother who had cancer moves back to her hometown in Winston-Salem. And, um, and th- th- he expected to be able to find a, a good paying middle-class job in the factories like there had been in North Carolina for generations. But instead what he found was, you know, those, those jobs were going away and, and the jobs that were left didn't pay as well. So Ed just sort of didn't miss a beat. He goes to work in two jobs a day, every day. When we met him, it was the, he was sort of midway through his second full-time shift of the day. He'd gotten up at six in the morning to lay tar on the highway for the state of North Carolina. And then in the evenings, he was doing custodial work. Uh, but he did that and still does it. Um, uh, now he works as a second job in a liquor store, but he still does it because he wants to give his family a middle-class life, which is hard to do. And that in itself is an amazing story and he's an amazing person. But then over time, I, getting to know him better after the first story I wrote him in Moran, um, I, I learned that his family is sort of the story of the progression of the middle class after World War II. A black family, his um, grandparents worked in the Reynolds Tobacco Factory in, in Winston, and his mom was one of 16 kids and moves, wow. right, right, 16 kids in a one-bedroom house. Um, Wow. Moves. She moves north uh, in the 50s to New York City as part of the Great Migration. Um, she gets an education that is statistically very rare for, uh, for a black woman at the time. She actually gets a, like a secretarial degree, post high school degree. But um, she's like the, the very first wave of, of this improved education. And then she and her husband build a middle class life that's part of the explosion of the black middle class in Queens. And um, they get access to jobs that, you know, their parents would not have been able to have. But because they, you know, he could be a plumber and she could work for a phone company, they were able to provide a middle-class life for themselves, but also provide New York City with the uh, amazing fruits of their labor and the American economy with higher value work than they ever would have been allowed to do before. And that's sort of 
the story of the middle class. And it's a thing that I love about Ed is that sort of, you know, reluctantly over time, over, you know, a string of smoothies and beers and phone calls. And um, he just sort of laid it out and told me and didn't even realize how indicative his parents' story was. Uh, so that's what I love about, about, uh, about him and about the people who make all this stuff real. Well, and Ed was a, when he was the good job he had in New York before moving back to Winston-Salem, he was a union bus driver in, in New York, right? He was a union Let's, bus driver. We're, we're, we're running short on time here, but I really just briefly, can you talk a little bit about the role that unions have played yeah, and maybe good. what they can and should do going forward to, as they're part of this? So unions were for a time, a really exclusionary force actually in America. They kept, uh, they kept women and, and black men out of a lot of really high paying professions, but then that flipped. And in um, the book actually opens with the story of a union organizing effort in, in the Reynolds yeah. tobacco plant. In the tobacco uh, factory, yeah. Um, uh, led by, by, by black women in, during World War II. Um, and, you know, those things went hand in hand. Uh, unions fought for, for their workers and they fought for more uh, opportunity for those workers. And I, and I would say, you know, to now, uh, I just saw yesterday the UAW had a big statement out on the uh, shooting and the police shooting in Kenosha. And um, they're taking an active role in this. I think unions have an important role to play. Um, they're also just because of the, the um, shifts in policy and shifts in the composition of the economy, a much you know, lesser force in America than they were a generation ago. And so whether it's by re-strengthening them um, or by just finding other ways to generate worker bargaining power that replicates what unions could do, in particular, tight labor markets with strong economic growth, low unemployment, strong economic growth, they, they sort of work like a super union across the economy. So uh, I, I think that those all have roles to play in getting workers income growth um, and, um, and are important. And, you know, I think uh, there are people who will tell you that unions are the magic bullet. And if we just had more of them, everything would be great. I, I don't personally subscribe to that, but I, I do think that they have an important role to play. And, you know, they're part of the story I tell in the book. That's terrific. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining Brian and I here today on the podcast. Folks, the book is The Riches of This Land by Jim Tankersley. You can get it where actually, Jim, tell us where's the best place for our listeners to get the book. Uh, anywhere, really. It is great. I'm, um, you can buy if you, uh, you know, want it uh, delivered uh, quickly and you are an Amazon person, you can get it on Amazon. If you want to support independent bookstores, uh, you know, there's a bunch of great ones, uh, Old Town Books here in in uh, Alexandria, where I live, or Powell's in Portland, where, uh, you know, near where I'm from. Uh, I'd recommend basically any of those. Um, but it, it, it uh, I just am so appreciative of you guys having me on and, and having a great discussion. It's, um, I think the, the ideas here are, are what matter to me. And, and uh, it'd be great if you all bought the book, but it'd be even better if you talked to folks about it. So. It's great to have you, Jim. Thanks we so really much. appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of HBS Insights. Thanks to my co-host, Brian D'Angelis, and a special thanks to our guest today, Jim Tankersley. Jim's the tax and economics reporter for the New York Times. He recently published The Riches of This Land, the untold true story of America's middle class. You can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies' work and our podcasts at www.hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insight. I'm your host, Michael Steele, and as always, thanks for listening.